in my heart uh, during the summer months when we're together here to, uh, for us to walk together through um, this particular book of Ezra. And uh, I have just been so helped and encouraged uh, just here as I have uh, dove into the first chapter in my own personal study. Um, you know, it, it, is, it, is a, it is possible sometimes for us to sort of develop an approach um, to, you know, certain books of the Bible um, that, you know, we really, uh, we really feel like, you know, there's really not a whole lot there for me. And, uh, and, and some books are, are a little bit harder to read than others. Uh, and because our Bible is, is, um, is ordered or structured in the way that it is, uh, where you understand that it's not, it's not written in chronological fashion, or, chronolo- or I shouldn't say it's written, it's not placed in chronological fashion as far as the books are concerned. As you start, you have the books of the law, and then you have books of history, and uh, then you have books of poetry, and then you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. And, uh, and, and so a lot of times, uh, we get a little confused as to, you know, okay, what exactly is, uh, is the time period in which this is being written? And so I really hope to, uh, to, to give us some understanding in some of these things. And by comparing them with some of the prophets that you're going to hear about tonight, you'll discover, okay, well, this was around this same period of time. And in your mind, you can think, well, if, if it was in chronological order, it'd be, it'd be in this portion of the Old Testament and not in the portion in which it is. But because our Bible is ordered in, in uh, sort of that systematic way where it's, again, law, history, and of course this is a historic book, the book of Ezra, and then poetry, major prophets, minor prophets. Uh, hopefully this will give us a little bit better understanding. So Ezra chapter number one, I want us to begin reading in verse number one where the Bible says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, now that's a clue right there, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And I hope by the end of tonight that you will come to the understanding that this is one of the most incredible miracles in all of the Bible. That a heathen pagan king is making a decree like this. And as we, as we discover and, and look at the background and we consider just why it is that he makes this decree and how he perhaps came to this conclusion that this is what he was supposed to do, I'm telling you, it is one of the most miraculous uh, evidences of, uh, of who God is in all of Scripture. Verse number three, who is there among you of all his people? Uh, his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. The title of the message tonight is one word, and that word is this, return return. In Genesis chapter number 12, you're familiar with this, God calls a man named Abram, and he tells him to to leave his homeland, Ur of the Chaldees, and to 
follow, follow God to a new land that he would show him. The Bible says in Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And so really it's all about a land. You leave this land, and you follow me to a new land that I'm going to show you. And so we see here that this is the foundation of, uh, of God's promise. And God promises that Abram's obedience would result in several things. As you read Genesis chapter number 12 and verse number 2, you'll find that Abram being obedient to God would result in Abram becoming the head of a great nation. The Bible says that. The Bible says, if you'll follow me, I'm going to make of you a great nation. In addition, God says, not only will you be the head of a great nation, but you will be blessed. God goes on to say in that same verse, there's four things that God attaches to this promise of following him in obedience. And that is this. He says, your name will be great. And that's true, isn't it? Here we are some, you know, 4,000 years later, and the name of Abraham is still very, very familiar to the vast majority of the world. He is known as one of the great characters of the Bible. God fulfilled that promise, didn't he? God made of Abram a great nation. God blessed Abram because he was willing to follow him. God made Abram's name great. And then he said this. He said that if you'll follow me, I will make you a blessing to others. Is that not true? I, I mean, through the obedience of Abram and through the family of Abraham, we have our Messiah and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, I would say, I would say that Abram's obedience brought great blessing into our lives. Wouldn't you agree? And, and not only that, but through Abram's obedience, God chooses the people through which he is going to give us his word. I would say that we would all agree we've been blessed because of Abram's obedience. And so these are the promises that that God attaches to Abram if he would be faithful. And Abraham obeyed, and he was faithful. And, um, and God did all that he said that he was going to do. But can I tell you that throughout the Old Testament, Abram's offspring were not nearly as faithful as he was. In fact, by the time we come to Ezra chapter number one, you know that land that God had promised to lead Abram to and God had promised to give Abram? By the time we come to Ezra chapter number one, that land that God had promised and given to Abram and his seed, that land had been leveled, including the house of God, the temple at Jerusalem. In fact, by the time we get there, that land that God had promised, it had been, in, it had not been inhabited by the time we get to Ezra one for for, for 70 long, brutal years. Because of Judah's continual rebellion and idolatry, God had allowed Babylon 70 years prior to come and to destroy the land and lead the people into a period of captivity that would be 70 years in length. But I have good news. And that good news is this. God was not at all done with his people nor was God done with this promised land spoken of in Genesis chapter number 12. Jeremiah himself prophesied that this very destruction and captivity, he talked about it long before it ever happened. He says it's going to happen, but he also included some hope with this prophecy. I want you to hold your place in Ezra chapter number one, and I want you to join me in Jeremiah chapter 25, if you would. Jeremiah chapter 25. Now, Jeremiah writes uh, this particular uh, passage of scripture just before the 70-year uh, cap captivity would begin. All right, so understand by the time we get to Ezra one, Jeremiah has been dead. 
He's been dead for quite some time. Uh, but just before, uh, before his life ended, uh, he wrote some of the prophecies that we're going to look at tonight. Look with me in Jeremiah 25. Now remember, in Ezra 1, the Bible says that, that, that God did all of this, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So look in Jeremiah 25, if you would, and, and join me in verse number 11. Jeremiah 25, verse number 11. And Jeremiah writes, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, how many years? Seventy years. And it shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolation. So here's God's, here's God's plan. God says, God says through the mouth of Jeremiah to the nation of Judah, you have been very, very unfaithful. You have been very disobedient. You have disregarded my law and my word for so long. I have been patient with you. Uh, I have given you grace and I have given you mercy. But the day is coming in which I will give you grace and mercy no more. I will allow the nation of Babylon to come in and I will allow them to destroy you and to lead you into captivity for 70 years. So here's what God saying God is saying that, that literally Babylon and the king of Babylon are going to become in some respects a rod in the hand of God and God says with that rod I'm going to punish you and they're going to lead you into captivity and the land that that you love the land that you've lived in all of these years will become a desolation during this period and during this time but notice as he turns his attention to verse number 12 there's a promise there and here's what God says God says but the day is coming Seventy years after I used Babylon as a whipping rod to whip my people, God says in, 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 at the end of the 70 years, verse number 12, he says, then I will turn my wrath on the rod that I used to punish you. God said, at that point, I am going to destroy Babylon for their pride and for their arrogance and for what they have done to you. And we, we, we turn a few chapters over. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter number 29. And he and expands on this just a little bit. And look what he says in verse number 10. Jeremiah 29 and verse number 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return. There's that word. To return to this place. Look in verse number, verse number 11, if you would, very familiar passage. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Can I tell you that as we come to Ezra chapter number one, and as this chapter opens, it is at the exact moment in history that God had appointed and that Jeremiah had prophesied some, some, some many years prior. The 70-year captivity is now coming to an end. And God has destroyed the kingdom of Babylon. And he has used the Medo-Persian Empire and this man by the name of Cyrus to come in and, 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 to, and to conquer uh, the land of, of, of Babylon. God has done some incredible things. And, and, and now listen, understand this. Here's what God does. Here's what God does. The Bible tells us that God stirs up Cyrus. And a return, a return to this land that was prophesied, this return that was prophesied is now made possible. 
You know, there's something special about a, a return to a significant place in your life. Having just returned from a family vacation, I was eager to sleep in my own bed. I was. I was, I was eager not to have to spend so much money at the gas stations as I was driving and crossing this, this country. I was, I, was eager, I was eager to get back to the work that God had called me to. I was eager to reunite with the people that God has led us to love and that God has called us to minister to here. I'm thinking to myself as I look at you all here tonight that many of you were raised somewhere other than here. And, 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 and as a result, you, you often try to return there as often as possible to revisit the memories that you have of that particular place. There's something about a return, isn't there? Uh, on our most recent trip, we spent just a couple of days in an area where uh, my wife and I uh, attended Bible college. We were heading back, and we kind of took a detour and, and spent a couple of days there and did some fun things with the family. And uh, hardly ever a time that I passed through that area, it was Knoxville, Tennessee, hardly ever a time that I passed through that area that I don't drive to some places that, uh, that were significant in my life there. Obviously, there was the church that I attended and the college that I was enrolled in. And, and as we drove down the road, my wife pointed, there, there are the kids, those are the dorms that, that we stayed in. Those are, the, you know, those are the places, and these are the classrooms that we had classes in, and this is where we did this, and this is where we did that. Hardly ever a time that I go by there that I don't go and visit the, the, the first apartment that my wife and I lived in together after we got married. It was the saddest, most pathetic apartment you've ever seen in your life. But we were, we were young and, and didn't know any better. And, and I, the bottom line was the bottom line. It was how much was this thing going to cost, you know? And we didn't think we were going to be there very long and, and uh, drive by there. And we just can't even hardly imagine that we lived there at one point in, in time. But I, I drove to that apartment and I sat in that parking lot for just a minute or two. I hope the people didn't see me. They think, who's this creep sitting outside my apartment, you know, looking at this place? And, and the places that maybe I worked, and I had my son with me one day, and, and, uh, and, I, and I took him by a car dealership that I worked at while I was there, and I, I parked in my very parking spot. And he said, this was your parking spot? I'm like, well, sort of. It's the one I parked in every day. You know, my, my name wasn't in front of it or anything, you know. And, and uh, little, little things like restaurants that we ate at. And, and again, just, just places. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? That'll, that'll return to a place that holds some very special memories is a very, very meaningful thing. Can I say that the return in Ezra 1 that is being spoken of here, can I, can I help you understand that, that what is being addressed here and what is being spoken of here, I believe, is much more than just a geographic return. In other words, God has something much, much more important in mind than just getting his people back into the land. No, this is, this is, this is, this is way, way beyond that. Oh yeah, they were afforded the chance to go back home and to inhabit their former homes. But can I tell you, this was to be much more than that. This was to be, this was to be a return to God and to living according to biblical principles and commandments. You have to ask yourself, why were they expelled from the land 70 years prior? Because they refused to do those things. And don't you, don't you, I mean, when you, when you discipline someone, and you, let's say you discipline your child for something, and maybe you, you have, well, there's all different ways, I suppose, that maybe we discipline. But let's just say you specifically deal with a child about a specific matter, and, and then you, and then you say, okay, we're good. I forgive you. I love you. And, and now go about your life. And if that child were to return and go back to the exact same thing, there'd be problems there, wouldn't there be? 
The purpose of discipline is to inflict the punishment and then to say, okay, it's time to move on. Now we can be in good relationship with one another. God had inflicted his people with a punishment, a 70-year-long punishment. And he, when he says, listen, it's time to go back home, and I'm going to stir up the king to do it, when he, when he says it's time for that, listen, he, he is, he's not just excited to get them back in the land. No, he's excited to get them back living the way that he has prescribed that they live. That's what this is all about. So this, as you read this and as you think about this return, understand this is much more than a return to a geographic location. No, what is being spoken of here is, is really a, a form of revival that is being dealt with. God was providing them with a second opportunity to live life according to his prescribed ways. So this return, its unusual origin by the decree of Cyrus and the response of God's people to it is the subject, I believe, of this first chapter of the book of Ezra. Here's the question I want to ask tonight. Is there a place, is there a place that God would have you to return to? Is there a place that God would have us as his church to get back to, to return to? Is it possible that maybe you've been in a period of captivity in some respects? in which God has been bringing punishment and, and, and difficulty into your life, not to make your life miserable, but to get your attention. And perhaps maybe now that punishment, that chastisement is coming to an end. And God is saying, okay, now listen, it's time. It's time to come back to me. It's time to return to where you once were. And my work has been accomplished in your life. It is time to return, I want you to with me tonight to consider these steps that are found that involve the return of God's people to the promised land from captivity, but also the return of God's people to biblical living, the living according to the commands of the Bible. And can I say this? It is not unlikely that God would still work in the same way today to bring about a return in our lives, in the life of our church, or even in the life of our nation because really, this is, this is really about a revival that is being discovered here and that God is leading his people to. I want you to notice, first of all, as we jump into the outline together tonight, number one, that this return is precipitated by God's stirring. This return is precipitated by God's stirring. You know, as with any great revival or moving, it must begin with a stirring of Almighty God. While we can't be dogmatic, the Jewish historian Josephus writes that the partiality, now get, get a hold of this, the partiality that Cyrus showed the Jews here in our text came about as a result of Daniel showing him biblical prophecies in God's word. Now think about that for just a moment. Daniel is still alive. Daniel is, is, is still alive as the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and takes over the Babylonian Empire and as the, the, the king is, is displaced. And, and you, you remember the story that was given is how they came into the city that night. Remember the handwriting that was on the wall? Daniel is still a, a, a very 
present uh, key part of that particular empire. And, and the Jewish historian Josephus writes, and he says, you know, it's not scripture, so I can't be dogmatic about this, but he says, he, he says most people believe that Cyrus had such a favorable view of God's people because he knew Daniel, and because Daniel had been faithful to show him the prophecies that were written about this period of time. Now think about that for just a moment. And what we're, what we're saying is this, is, is that this, uh, this, this stirring comes about uh, because, because of, of God's word and a moving of God's word and because of God's man. In fact, can I, can I just be honest with you? Jeremiah wrote about the 70-year captivity, but did you know that Isaiah actually took things a step further? For the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn there. But Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 44 in verse number 28. Now now listen, you don't even have to turn there. There it is right there on the screen. Isaiah actually mentioned Cyrus's name some 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Now think about that for just a moment. Now, if 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 you're a king and you're sitting on a throne and somebody brings an ancient manuscript to you, And they say, I want to show you something. This was written hundreds of years ago, but I want you to know your name is in this book. Would that not blow you away? Would that not perhaps convince you, hey, there's something going on here. This this God and his people are to be feared and and are to be be revered. Go back to that text if you would. Look Look what he says there. It says, that saith, there's his name, of Cyrus. He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Then it goes into chapter 45 and verse number one. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, there's his name again, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaf gates. This is speaking of, of God opening up the, the, the way for them to go into Babylon and to conquer the Babylonian empire. And so here is Cyrus, and he's living life, and he's, he, he, he thinks he's this great king, and then one day he is, he, is, he is brought, listen, he is brought very low when he realizes, hold on a minute, there's a God in heaven who knows all about me. There's a God in heaven who has spoken of me, even given my name hundreds of years even before I was born. Don't you suppose that'd stir you up just a little bit? Don't you suppose that would get your attention? And that's exactly what God did. And therefore, we can make strong conclusion that God stirred up Cyrus using his word and his prophet Daniel. It is not unreasonable to conclude that God stirs, still stirs people to revival today using his word and using his called or ordained people, preachers, ministers of the gospel. Let me say just a couple of things about this stirring that we must acknowledge from our text, and that is number one, this. Only God can stir up the spirit of a man. Only God can stir up the spirit of a man. Would you look in verse number one? The Bible says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. You know, I, um, I am well aware. I am well aware of just how limited my ability is. I, I, what I'm saying is this. I can communicate a message to your eyes and to your ears. But listen, it is God alone who can communi- communicate that message to your spirit. 
Can I tell you that's the goal? The, the, listen, if the goal, if the goal is, is, is just to get you in here and just communicate a message to your ears, then we're wasting our time. We're wasting our time because all of that is physical. All of that is temporal. No, no, listen, the goal, the goal is that we get God's word, that we get God's truth, and that we get God's message deep inside of our spirit, inside of our innermost being, inside of our heart, and that it lead us and that it guide us. Can I say that there, no doubt, have been many who have stood to preach God's word and have done so absent God's power. Can I say that without God's power, we're merely taking up your valuable time, we're wasting your time. Can I say that when God gets in a message, God can stir a man much deeper than any preacher ever could in his own flesh and his own ability. God is the one who stirs a man in his spirit. Look in verse number five. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all of them, look, whose spirit God had stirred. You see, this is a work that only God can do. Now consider, consider that this man Cyrus was not a regenerated man. He was not a Hebrew king. He was not of Jewish origin. No, no. This man, Cyrus, uh, considered that he was a pagan. He was a heathen king. And yet, and yet when confronted with the truth of God's word, he was stirred to do what God had ordained that he do. I just wonder, I just wonder if maybe, maybe we're missing the boat. We're trying to be clever. and We're trying to be pragmatic. And we're trying to, to be hip and to be, you know, whatever the case might be. How can, we, how can we get God's message into the lives of people? And can I just tell you that, 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 listen, it is not dependent upon our ability. It is not dependent upon our clever, crafty ways. No, no, listen, this work of communicating a message to man's spirit, this is a work that only God can do. Something that we're completely and wholly incapable of doing. I'm thinking to myself as I read this text that Christians are filled with much angst over the condition of the world, aren't they? Oh, we're, we're filled with such fear and anxiety over the wicked rulers who hold positions of authority. It doesn't seem like, doesn't it seem like every, every man and every woman that holds a position of authority in our country and our world has, has some major, major skeletons in their closet, or, the, or, or we even say like this, they're just a wicked person altogether. Does it bother you sometimes? Does it bother you some of the things that the people who are ruling over us, some of the things that they believe? Does that trouble your spirit? It ought to. As a Christian, as a believer, it ought to until, until we're reminded of what we find here in Ezra chapter number one. We find a heathen pagan king, just as heathen and just as pagan, as any world leader that sits in a position of authority today. And yet, what do we discover? <laughs> we discover this helpful and positive reminder, and that is this. doesn't matter who's sitting on the throne. doesn't matter who's sitting in the White House. God is still, and God is always in control. Amen. In Proverbs 21, in verse number one, the Bible says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Isaiah said it like this in Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 11. He said, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. He, he says, I am God and there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. You know what, you know what Isaiah is saying? You know what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah? He's saying this, quit worrying about who's sitting in the White House. Quit worrying about who's the head of the United Nations. Quit worrying about who the Queen of England is. Quit worrying about the gas prices and quit worrying about the energy prices and quit worrying about the war in Ukraine and quit worrying about this and quit worrying about that. I have it all under control. Doesn't feel like it's under control. Feels like it's a mess, doesn't it? But God's got everything right where he wants it to be. Have you, ever, have you ever held a Rubik's Cube in your hand that was all twisted? Did you know that I am, I'll be 43 years old on Sunday, and I have never in my life solved a Rubik's Cube? I've, I've taken to peeling the stickers off and kind of putting them all on the same side. That's the only way I can solve a Rubik's Cube. But did you know I've watched, I've watched people take a jumbled up Rubik's Cube and solve that thing in like 30 seconds? Now, that's a pathetic illustration. But I'm just simply saying, when we look at this world, it looks like a jumbled up Rubik's Cube. I mean, everything's out of order. But I want you to know something. God's hand is on that Rubik's Cube. God is in control. And we see that only God can stir up the spirit of a man. It doesn't matter who that man is. Oh, it can be, it can be the President of the United States of America. It can be the Vice President. It can be the most heathen man in the world. And if God determines to get in, into his life and God determines something, oh, that man, that man must, must obey, must do what God has determined, what God has decreed by God's stirring. But can I say number two, God's stirring, not only, only God can stir up the spirit of man, but can I say number two, that only, or I say this, number two, God's stirring is clear and recognizable. Number two, God's stirring is clear and recognizable. Look, in verse number two. So Cyrus says, the, the Bible tells us that God stirs up Cyrus to make this decree. And what do, what's the decree that Cyrus makes? Here it is, verse number two. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. You know, when, when God stirs a man or a woman, they know it. They know it. And, and, and let me just say this, that, that they know that God is stirring them, and they know exactly what it is that he is stirring them up about. Why? Because the stirring of God, when, when God stirs in a man's heart and in his life, it is clear and it is recognizable. Did you know that God is the ultimate communicator? Amen. You don't believe me? Think about this. This book was written... Thousands of years ago. It was written that we believe by, by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, and yet, and yet every day, you and I have an opportunity to open this book and to read from its pages, listen, and it speaks right into our hearts and into our lives. Why? Because God is the ultimate communicator. I don't know about you, but I've, I, I enjoy reading. I'm trying to be a better reader. I've got a goal of how many books I want to read this year, and, and, um, and they're not, you know, they don't have just all pictures in them. Don't worry about that, you know. They're not comic books, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do some heavy reading. And every once in a while, I'll pick up a book that was written a long time ago, and I'll try to read it, and it makes no sense to me. You know, the sentence construction or the words that are being used, whatever the case might be. But this book is different, isn't it? 
I mean, this book, it, I mean, it comes right into my life and it confronts me exactly where I am. Why? Because God is the ultimate communicator. God is the ultimate communicator. And by the way, by the way, you, you ought to pray. You ought to pray for your pastor. You ought to pray for those who preach God's word because they are tasked with an awesome responsibility to stand and to communicate God's message to people today. Well, what a responsibility that is for God's messenger. And I, I think to myself, God's the ultimate communicator. And that, that, here it is. Here, here's the point. He has no problem whatsoever communicating his eternal message to mortal men. And once a man has been stirred by God, he is confronted with whether or not to obey God and whatever he is stirring him up about. And in the case of, of Cyrus, he is confronted with, with these three truths. And I'm going to give them to you and be done tonight. We, we won't have time to go any further. But here are the truths. Here's the truths that, that, that God communicated to Cyrus that he gives in this decree. Number one, here's, here's the first truth is this. God is God and I am not. Truth number one that Cyrus acknowledged is this, God is God, and I am not. Look, look at the beginning of this decree. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm just the king. I'm an earthly king. I have, a, I have an earthly kingdom down here. It's the Persian Empire, and that is what I have been given authority and responsibility over. But notice, he says, here's what I'm going to say, but notice here who has communicated this to me, the Lord God of heaven the Lord God of heaven. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I've come to the conclusion, I've come to the realization, God has communicated this truth to me, that he is God and I am not. Amen. That's a great truth for us to get in our lives, isn't it? That God is God above and we are not. Though Cyrus was a powerful king, and he certainly was, the most powerful man alive at that moment, he came to the conclusion that the God of heaven was speaking to him, a lowly king here on this earth, that had been created by almighty God. Here's the second truth that Cyrus had come to the conclusion of through God's stirring, and that is this. Number two, whatever power and influence I have is given by God. That's the second truth that he discovered. He says this, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. You know, Cyrus discovered that not only was God vastly superior to him, but also that any influence and power he possessed came about as a result of God gifting him with it. If all the kingdoms of the earth were given to him by God, then Cyrus acknowledged he would be accountable for what he did with these things. Maybe, maybe Cyrus even read Isaiah 44 in verse number 28, which revealed Cyrus to be God's shepherd. Maybe he came to the conclusion that as a result of being God's shepherd, then he was going to be accountable for the handling of God's sheep as God's shepherd. But Cyrus discovered God is God and I am not. And whatever power and influence I have is given by God. But notice thirdly, Sol excuse me, not Solomon, but Cyrus came to this realization as a result of God communicating. And that is this, number three, I have a calling from God. Look at the end of verse number two. The God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he hath charged me. He hath called me. He's placed this calling upon my life. He hath called me. What has he called me to do? To build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. As a man of influence and power, Cyrus was stirred by God to use that influence and power in a specific way. He was charged or called by God to lead God's people to return to their land, rebuild the temple, and resume biblical obedience. Can I say this tonight as we conclude? The stirring of God is not confusing. It's not confusing at all. We might pretend it is to avoid yielding to it. 
I don't know what God's telling me to do. No, you know exactly what God's telling you to do. You just don't want to do it. It's a whole lot easier to act confused. My kids do that. My kids do that. Your, your kids do that too. Hey, son, put that away. Huh? Huh? What? 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 Or they pretend like they didn't hear. I don't know. Sometimes I look at them and say, I know you heard me. I know you heard me. I can't prove it in that moment, but I know you heard me. It's a lot easier sometimes to just pretend like we didn't hear it, to act like we're confused, like we don't understand what it means. I want you to know something. Listen, when God stirs a man, it's not confusing. When God stirs a man, there's no, there's no mistaking it. There's no hiding from it. This pagan king reminds us that God speaks clearly and definitively. And I want to I conclude with this, this question tonight. Will we obey what he stirs us up about? What's God, what's God stirring you up about tonight? What, is, what has God put his finger, his hand on in your heart and in your life and clearly has revealed to you, this is what I want for you, this is what I have for you? What is God stirring you up about tonight? And will you be obedient? Cyrus was. Cyrus, a heathen, pagan king, obeyed God and did everything God told him to do in this instant. Wouldn't it be a shame if we, his chosen people, those that he has redeemed, those who have the Holy Spirit of God living inside, wouldn't it be a shame if we were less obedient to God's stirring than Cyrus was? Our heads are bowed.